0: In the port of Amsterdam, there's a sailor who sings Of the dreams that he brings from a wide open sea And in the port of Amsterdam...
1: Hello there, folks, and welcome to the Book and Film Globe podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe and the greatest living American writer. You can find Book and Film Globe at www.bookandfilmglobe.com We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and much more. We have a great show for you this week. As usual, film critic Stephen Garrett will be here to talk to me about Amsterdam, the David O. Russell movie that recently bombed at the box office, as well as Tar, which is a movie starring Kate Blanchett that is going to get her a lot of awards and attention. And we're also going to talk to Pablo Gallaga about the Hellraiser reboot, which is now airing on Hulu. And we will be right back to talk about all those films after this important,
2: Show you his teeth that have rotted too soon. That can haul up the sails, that can
0: swallow the moon. And he yells to the cook with his arms open wide. Oh. Bring me more fish, throw it's down by my side,
2: and he wants so to belch, but he's too full
1: to try. It's time so for our regular segment. Let's talk about movies with and Stephen, and also sometimes Neil goes, goes to the movies. So that's a good, I think that's good, right? That's a nice, concise title. It's fair, it's fair. It's kind of true, actually. Stephen yeah. Kerr, our uh, our film critic, is here to talk with me about a couple of new movies, one of which I reviewed on the site this week, and one of which he reviewed on the site this week. We'll start with me, because it's the more uh, wide-released movie, and the one that, as I said to Stephen a little bit earlier before we were recording, it's going to have a short shelf life. life. And I'm talking about uh, Amsterdam, directed by David O. Russell, which Stephen has also seen. You saw it, I'm guessing, at which foreign country did you see this movie in?
2: It was not i mean if the upper west side is a foreign country uh, I mean, to, me,
1: to me it is i live in texas so yeah so
2: <laughs> i live on an island off the coast of uh america
1: oh, yeah i live in i live in austin texas and i i am just recently fresh from seeing amsterdam and you know i have to admit like i'm not a wasn't a big fan of david o russell's films going into this movie and i'm even less of a fan of david o russell's movies after seeing this film um it <laughs> it's a it takes place mostly in the 1930s in New York City in 1933 a sort of sort of a depression era it's like it's it's kind of like a noir comedy but there's also a long section that takes place in um Belgium and Amsterdam uh d- during World War 1 and uh, the i guess the plot involves three friends who make who make make friends in a in a World War 1 field hospital uh Christian Bale and John David Washington are Soldiers who get shot up and then healed by a nurse who is actually not a nurse, she's like a spy who's pretending to be a French nurse, played by Margot Robbie. And then they sing a nonsense song, and That's they, right, and, and then they become friends. And then 15 years later, they somehow uh, become embroiled in a fascist plot to take over America. After some guys try to frame Washington and bail for pushing Taylor Swift in front of a car, and if you, <laughs> I'm it, joking. I mean, it's not it's that is. If yeah, that's that's, that's that's the plot. That's actually what happened, and you know, nothing. The thing about this movie is, okay, look, I mean, any plot can make sense if it's done with style and, and wit. And the thing about this movie is, that it's simultaneously kind of uh, irreverent and snarky, but also like incredibly pretentious and self-serving. Uh, and and the tones just don't mix. And there's it's just a, a mess. And there's a lot of a lot of times. Uh, characters will just appear and summarize the plot and then you'll see a flashback and sometimes you won't and then another character will summarize the plot and it just goes, the script is really, really
2: bad. Agreed. Well, I um, I don't think, I, I think I liked it a bit more than you although I, I agree that it doesn't quite gel but I could say that about most David O. Russell films so I kind of, I think I, we're kind of simpatico that way. I, he always struck me as a very manic um, kind of storyteller and somebody who loves actors and loves indulging actors and, you know, to the extent of kind of fulfilling that cliche that every actor loves a dress-up box, you know. So, like, what wig do I wear? Oh, I get a glass eye. Right. Oh, that's
1: fantastic. I, you know, I, more scars. For some reason, for, for a few scenes, Margot Robbie wears a hat. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Why is she suddenly wearing a hat? Um, yeah, there's a lot of that. You know, I just felt like the acting was, was you know, considering the cast, I mean, it, it, it's pretty bad. You know, Christian Bale was incredible, had this hammy New York accent. Margot Robbie had a series of hammy accents. Um, the only actors I liked in this, uh, Robert De Niro appears as a general who um, it, they try to recruit into the fascist plot. He's, he's got too much integrity. I thought he was actually pretty, I mean, yeah, he, he's Robert De Niro, but he, it's not like Robert De Niro can't can't throw a bad performance against the wall, but I thought he actually like kind of held the screen really well. And, and did the best he could, and I also Zoe Saldana is in this movie as a very. She's very. I find her. I found her very relaxed. She was very relaxing, you know. Yeah, everyone yeah. Everyone else, in the movie is so manic, and she's this like nurse who's also a, a more. Was she like a coroner of some sort? I don't know. She
2: so. is of some sort. Yeah, she does an autopsy, and and actually, it's it's a bit more than just you know they're after uh, you know like they killed or they're being they're being accused of killing Taylor Swift, but. Taylor Swift is the daughter of another general who is friends with Robert De Niro and, and these guys served under that general. So in a sense, they're actually, they're being recruited to solve the mystery of this dead general. And then the daughter is suddenly killed in front of them and they're framed for it. So they have to clear their name and also solve the mystery of their dead general who then gets entwined, you know, leads them to De Niro, frankly. Right. Um,
1: The problem is, is that it's not really a mystery. It's a story. That we don't know the. I guess of any mystery is a story you don't know the ending of. But it's like this. There, there's no clues other than like these like very very obvious things that like happen, you know. And you yeah, know, there, there's not a lot of there's no wrong turns. and, You know, and it, so it's kind, of, but it's not. But you can't really call this a noir because it's too no. sticky. But it's not well like comedy because it's too serious.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, some someone once said. Uh, that great films transcend genre, which is to say that they play and borrow from different styles, and uh, when it's working at its best, it kind of creates a new genre, you know, or is so singular that it's its own kind of thing, you know what I mean? I'm not saying that this is that, this is a failed attempt at that. Uh, Bad films also transcend genre. (laughs) (laughs) No, they just end up being bad movies. Well, I think David O'Russell has just created his own genre, which is this manic kind of mishmash of different you know he's he he creates these kind of bipolar movies where everybody is so manic and they're one one moment it's a screwball comedy the other it's this you know tragedy or whatever and and this i agree with you it it doesn't it doesn't quite gel i think he's he's trying to go for a kind of a a a screwball slash film noir mix yeah uh film and
1: margot robbie and david uh, john david washington's characters um are have this star-crossed love affair you know he's black she's white they can't be together, but they're still together. But I felt like they had less chemistry than than Christian Bale did with his glass eye. You know, there's like a lot of ver- – there's a lot of scenes of Christian Bale dropping his eye and putting it back. <laughs> I mean, once or twice you'd get it, but I'm like, this is like the sixth time we've seen an eye insertion.
2: And, I mean, talk about a, a movie star who loves being a character actor, like, right? You know, he loves having wigs. He loves having different, like, crazy accents. I mean, in this, I, I just – at one point, I had in my head that he was doing Columbo, that he was doing a Peter Falk, and then I couldn't get that out of my head for the rest of the movie. And I was like, "Oh yeah, yeah, it's Peter I Falk." I felt like solving it, a mystery.
1: I felt like it was like an American history class performed by a, sort of a, a B-level improv troupe in Chicago.
2: <laughs> I will say this though: I think, and I think this is an interesting point. I, I, a friend of mine said, "This is this is sort of like uh, you know, there was this period in the '70s where." Uh, filmmakers were making these period films that were set in the 30s. And he said, this is kind of like David O. Russell making a 70s movie that's set in the 30s, you know? Um,
1: I mean, but do you compare it to, let's say, you know, Guillermo del Toro made Nightmare Alley last year, which was set in the 30s. Uh, right. And that, I, I had my my problems with that movie only because I just felt it was kind of cold and distant, but it was, you know, tight and beautifully, beautiful to look at.
2: beautiful to you know, look at.
1: Beautiful to look at and, you know, very faithful to its excellent... Um, legitimate noir novel source material as well as a, a you know a classic noir movie whereas this was just like some kind of weird homage to something and you know especially considering also we've had good world war one movies in recent years too with like you know the yeah. jackson documentary and 1917 you know movies that really and wonder woman you know movies that really <laughs> really got at world war one and really dug deep and this this felt kind of kind of
2: thin you know well, I have to say, I, I think um, look when he's when he's really working. I mean, I, I was not a big fan of Silver Playbook. I, I really like Joy. Actually, American Hustle, I wasn't crazy about. I, I haven't been really crazy about most of his movies, frankly. Um, but uh, but there are great moments and scenes, and he attracts a lot of really talented actors. Sometimes maybe indulges them to a fault, but um, in a weird way. And speaking of the '70s, he kind of reminds—he's got an Alton vibe. Like he is at the point in his career where he trusts. He gains the trust of a lot of different actors he can assemble a huge cast a very impressive cast and he can tell kind of really offbeat stories and hopefully he can keep the budgets down low enough to keep doing that and maybe it's an odds game maybe it's a numbers game If he just keeps at it um you know
1: uh, robert altman never made a movie this bad because you know (laughs) because he made a lot of movies and some of them were actually pretty bad but you know an altman vibe i mean i guess you know, in, in that, like, there are a lot of actors in the movie that you recognize. You know, Rami Malik shows up, and, and, you know, Anya Taylor-Joy. Anya Taylor-Joy,
2: yeah. And they yeah. act. Michael. What is going on? Oh, yeah, Michael. Michael Shannon. That's my dog. Michael yeah. Shannon pops up with uh, Mike Myers. Yeah. Of course. That's weird. Weird ornithologist spies. How ironic that
1: Mike Myers plays a character who is basically Basil Exposition. <laughs> right, exactly. <So>. Anyway. <laughs> look. I'm, I, can't, I can't recommend Amsterdam. Steven can't recommend Amsterdam a little bit less than me.
2: I think there's some interesting things in it. I don't think you'll you know, be too disappointed, especially with low expectations. But it doesn't quite gel, I think, the way they wanted it to. But I, mean, I think there, there's some smart ideas. There's some interesting kind of character studies. There's some true emotion, I, I felt. I was very touched. You know, that whole idea of the Amsterdam, of course, well, not of course, but it refers to a moment in time after World War One where the, the the main trio here um kind of uh gets to forget their troubles and actually enjoy this sort of utopian existence this polyam maybe polyamorous i don't know it's not it's it's like a a chaste sort of jewels and jim vibe that's going on there right sure. um but uh there's something kind of lovely and idyllic about that moment in time where you can have that and if you can if you can get it once you know it's it, it lingers and i think it Kind of uh, informs their characters in an interesting way. I, I thought there was enough in there to keep my interest, hmm. but I agree. It's, it's not, it doesn't quite work. I didn't buy it.
1: I didn't buy <laughs> it at all. I've been to Amsterdam and boy, did I have some fun, especially you know, uh, had some fun in the 90s, man. <laughs> but it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't idyllic in, in, in quite the same way. I, 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 <laughs> I, I was, I was either there by myself or with, with, uh, with my soon to be wife. And uh, we had, we didn't have a third. Fair enough. No third, no third for dinner. Um, but, uh, anyway, Stephen liked it, I guess. I guess he liked it. I didn't like it. You're not going to like it. It,
2: it. I didn't dislike it. Uh, and if, it were, if I were forced to sit through it again, or if I, if I saw it on cable, I would probably stop and watch a few scenes and be like, eh, you know, and then probably drift away. There's some fun. Yeah, I, I didn't hate it. All right. Amsterdam
1: in theaters now. We'll be right back to talk about Tar. If you're here, then you already know who she is. Lydia Tarr is many things. As a conductor, Tarr began her career with the Cleveland Orchestra, Chicago Symphony Orchestra, the Boston Symphony Orchestra, until she had last arrived here at our own New York Philharmonic. In 2013, Berlin elected Tar as its principal conductor, and she's remained there ever since. Lydia Tarr has also written music for the stage and screen. She is one of only 15 EGOTs, meaning those who have won
2: all four major entertainment awards. Thank you for joining us, Maestro. Thank you.
1: How's the writing going? Not so well. I keep hearing something. Schopenhauer measured a man's intelligence against his sensitivity to noise.
0: Do you ever find yourself overwhelmed by emotion? Yes. Yes, it does happen.
1: Stephen Garrett is still with me. We didn't have anything better to do this afternoon, but talk about movies (laughs) is our favorite thing to do anyway. Uh, There's another film that is opening regionally, this week and nationally and art houses soon enough art houses and film societies that's where this is going to show maybe maybe at some point some streaming service will pick it up i'm talking about tar the new movie from todd field who is not a director who has not been heard from since 2006 when he made the adaptation of tom ferrata's novel little children he also directed as from a noir thriller called in the bedroom and this is tar Starring Kate Blanchett as uh, she says, she's as a troubled conductor genius. Stephen, you saw this movie uh, at at some film festival somewhere. Or, or both film festivals that you went to this year?
2: Yes, this uh, debuted at Venice and uh, just played at the New York Film Festival a few days ago.
1: And uh, you know this, you 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 gave this high mark. Uh, most people who have seen it, we we had another critic, a critic see it in Venice and write about it glowingly, and you also gave it a very strong recommendation on the site.
2: I did, yeah. You know, it's it's really, um, boy, it's wonderful to see a movie like this that um, it really satisfies an audience's need to see a very intelligent, very subtle, very complex story told um, It felt like a rapid clip. I mean, the movie is two and a half hours long, but uh, especially in the first 45 minutes or so, there is so much going on, and Cate Blanchett's uh, performance um, is really riveting, and she has just reams of dialogue, and what she's saying, she's a conductor. Um, The the, the main opening scene is her being interviewed by Adam Gatnick of The New Yorker. It's probably some sort of New Yorker festival-type event. God help me. Wait, Adam Gatnick is in the movie? he is he is Uh, yeah it's you know know, sustained scene of him uh interviewing her that's a fascinating and your reaction is also part and parcel of of how to digest this film it is about elitism it is about the idea of these institutions that embrace and encourage and protect and maybe you know um uh, to a fault uh celebrate uh people who might be fundamentally flawed um, and uh, Tar is Lydia Tar, who is Kate Blanchett, and she plays a world-class conductor who is um, renowned around the world and has just written a book on herself called Tar on Tar, and is about is prepping to uh, conduct Mahler's Fifth Symphony in Berlin with an orchestra that she's uh, overseeing there. Um, but she is an incredibly sophisticated person; can speak very eloquently about what she does and why. And it's incredibly engaging and kind of thrilling to see dialogue be so commanding. And so, um, so um, uh, it kind of, um, it just draws you in. It really sucks you in. And, and there, there are three very uh, extended scenes of dialogue with people just sitting and talking, mostly Kate Blanchett, of course. Um, she's, at, she's interviewed on stage, and then there's a scene where she is talking with a, a donor who is a kind of um, dilettante conductor himself, an amateur conductor. There's an extended scene of them talking at a very fancy restaurant over lunch about the politics and, uh, you know, of, of the conducting world and, and the, uh, you know, the different uh, organizations that this guy is involved with. And, of course, he's kind of paying for her lush hotel room and her private jet, you know, so that she can go back and forth. And then there's a third extended scene where she is giving a master class at Juilliard and talking with students about... The art of conducting and the great masters and then gets into a sort of kind of basically tripwires um or triggers so to speak uh, a uh, a student there who is a non-binary student who pushes back about the whole idea of studying these kind of cis white you know uh, uh monolithic uh talents like bach and and, and beethoven and, and Mahler, and um and that is a fascinating extended scene as well so there's there's just this is get thrown at you one after the next. They're beautifully directed, amazingly written, wonderfully acted. Um, And the film, I I don't think it's a complete masterpiece. I think it's very, very good. And I think uh, it's hard to sustain that level of engagement, at least for me, I was wrapped for the first two hours. And then the second, I mean, the the last half hour is her fall from grace um, because there's a scandal that involves um, a dalliance with a student and a student Uh, There's self-harm, and she basically, it becomes a Me Too type thing where she's canceled. And that downfall happens um, in in kind of a whimper, and it happens fairly suddenly, which is not surprising. But I think the fact that she just doesn't, uh, this commanding figure through the whole film, that really uh, just is almost ferocious in the way that uh, she controls the situation, just folds, I, I felt was a little unrealistic after it's such a great setup and, and um, fleshing out her complexities to, sit, to see her kind of be defeated and say, Oh, I don't quite remember. Oh, I don't really know the details. It seemed like a missed opportunity. I, I felt like it could have been a much richer, stronger ending. Um, but she gets her comeuppance and it becomes a story of comeuppance more than so, anything else. So more, it sounds like more of a character study in search of a plot. It's very much a character study, yeah. And and I think chat uh it just gives it such layers and nuances. And, and frankly, uh, I, I wouldn't say gives it, but, but brings it out, copes it out of the writing because it's already there. In fact, Field said there's a Q&A after the press screening that he, he really did write this for her. He'd never really written a part for somebody and he didn't know whether she would even accept. And he didn't want to even tell her or tell anyone that he had written it for her until the casting agent's like who do you who do you see for this and he's like uh i don't know okay chat. um but thank god it worked out because it really is it just it's like a glove she is fascinating in it um does a, an amazing job it's it's a rich film and there's a weird mystery that's going on. it almost kind of reminded me of michael haneke's films where you need to see it multiple times to to actually suss out all the clues that he's leaving these breadcrumbs throughout the story where they pay off later, but they don't quite make sense initially when you see it. And then you add it up and you go, oh, I see what's happening. Um, and anyway, no, it's, it's really, it's a, it's a wonderful experience. And, it, and it's a real kind of study of elitist institutions more than it is a study of or a, some sort of indictment of Me too culture, which it really isn't.
1: I get, I, I'm curious as well. Do you get music? Is there good music in it? Do you get, do you get the classical music? Cause I, yeah. if you're going to do a movie about classical music. There should be extended scenes of music, right?
2: There are. And in fact, uh, you know, she, uh, was, uh, sorry, she, Kate Blanchett was at the, um, at the Q and a as well. And she talked about how she learned to do, she learned to be a conductor. She's actually conducting up there as well. I mean, she really, um, and learned it. she taught herself piano, she taught herself German. She's, you know, she's, she's polylingual in this film. She's going back and forth in different languages. Um, and uh, the, there is a, gosh, who is the composer? Hold on, let me look really quickly, but there is a composer. Um, yeah, Gudna Dotter is her name. Pardon me for mangling her name, but she's a, she's a cellist. And there, there's a, there's a character who is a cellist in there. Uh, Russian, char- uh, Russian cellist named Olga, who Kate Blanchett's character kind of lasciviously eyes and wants to groom for her own purposes. Um, and that story is also part of the unraveling. But uh, the woman playing Olga, this German cellist, is actually uh, not German, but is definitely a cellist, and she performs as well. So there's great, great classical music There's great conversations about classical music. There's great analysis of why classical music works and why it's important. I mean, it really is. It's. I mean, I don't know how much Todd Field knows about classical music, but I would imagine I would not be surprised if there was this lifelong love for it and admiration for it and the people in it. You know, and uh, whether Bernstein is invoked, you know,
1: music about movie about classical music. uh, If he didn't love it, it's not. Yeah, exactly. It's not
2: like it's a satire. So, uh, it's not at all. It's really not at all. And it's interesting because I I, I want to believe that um, what he is basically doing is somewhat of a it's certainly a critique, if not an indictment of a culture where classical music is embraced by uh, this kind of monolithic elitist institution um, that uh, or different institutions that um, that really don't allow for um, much change or innovation or they they allow kind of autocrats to run rimshot, ramshot over other people you know all right well listen
1: um, i'm going to see tar enthusiastically if you can promise me there will be no more movies starring adam Gopnik
2: i <laughs> can i can't even get a guarantees but uh he was pretty good man i got to say he plays a good adam Gopnik yeah uh, yeah he nailed it
1: oh god why why does god hate me <laughs> All right. Uh, anyway, tar is, is available for viewing now. I'm guessing in New York, and maybe in Los Angeles, and maybe in Chicago, and eventually, eventually, uh, the rest of us will get a chance to see it as well. Stephen, we will talk to you about movies again very soon. Absolutely.
2: I have a problem.
0: I received another weird email.
2: There's no reason to get caught up in any intrigue. I'm worried. She's starting to disappear into herself.
1: So my own experience with the Hellraiser franchise can be summed up as follows. I was working as a ticket taker in the Paradise Valley, Arizona Mall in the summer of 1986 86 or 87, whenever, whenever year the original Hellraiser came out and, uh, and Hellraiser was showing on multiple screens. And I, I was carrying tickets, and I looked up, and I saw a very familiar face uh, who had bought a ticket to Hellraiser along with his wife or partner or whatever. It was Alice Cooper. Yes, I tore Alice Cooper's ticket for Hellraiser. I didn't actually see Hellraiser myself, but I, I, I allowed Alice Cooper the uh, ability to see it. Alice Cooper lived in Phoenix, Arizona. That's my Hellraiser story, and now there's a new Hellraiser available to watch on Hulu. Pablo Gallaga saw this at Fantastic Fest here in Austin, and he's here to talk to me about the new Hellraiser. Hello, Pablo.
0: Hey, Neil. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, of course. So uh, how did the audience in Austin respond to Hellraiser? It's been a long time since there's been a Hellraiser movie.
0: It was a very positive reaction, first and foremost, because it was on the big screen, whereas most people are going to only be able to watch it on Hulu uh also after a somewhat mixed reaction to the first secret screening at Fantastic Fest this year which was uh Marvel's Werewolf by Night.
1: Yeah, so uh so people people like the Hellraiser and you also you also gave the Hellraiser a uh a um pretty positive response. This isn't a, really a sequel to the original Hellraiser franchise. It's more of a reboot, right?
0: Yeah, definitely a reboot, not a remake, uh, whereas it's not following, you know, the same kind of story beats or the expectation of recreating characters, recasting them. Uh, Yeah, it's a completely uh, new story. You know, I think uh, less transgressive than the original uh, sort of films. And, you know, anything that's kind of riding the ship in any sort of way where probably the last seven or eight entries in the franchise have been direct-to-video type things and Doug Bradley retired from the role of Pinhead, and they've been struggling to kind of replace him. So, yeah, I mean, I feel like it could have gone very, very badly trying to do a remake in the streaming era, and it, it, was, it was good.
1: Now, the basic premise of Hellraiser is what? There's like this puzzle box that exists in our world, and if it gets blood in it or it gets solved, it opens the door to some sort of sadistic alternate dimension. Is that, does that sound about right?
0: That's pretty right. Yeah, it is both a beacon and a portal, uh, inter- interdimensional portal that summons the cenobites and the hell priest Pinhead, and they are, you know, described as explorers of, uh, you know, seeking the regions of of the balance between pleasure and pain, and they can't really distinguish between the two anymore.
1: So they're sort of like um, intercosmic uh, S and M torture porn purveyors.
0: Yes, the the ultimate hedonists, pretty much.
1: And, uh, and and so, you know, that may have seemed transgressive, right? It's based on a Clive Barker, uh, con- is it a Clive Barker short story, or did Clive Barker conceive of this uh, this realm originally as a movie? I'm not, I don't quite remember the origin of
0: it. It got its start uh, as a novella called The Hellbound Heart, and then, uh, yes, shortly after the first film in 1987, I believe it was, there's kind of like a... Back and forth but whether it was 1986 or 1987 uh, and then it kind of took off from there there's been comic books um other books and then you know the series the film series kind of went downhill and started going direct to video
1: and so the the cenobites as you call them they, what are they when people from our world stumble into their their realm they what do they they torture them they have sex with them and i it's, this is so unappealing to me <laughs>
0: So canonically, there's different iterations of what their origins are and what they really, some of them are considered just demons. Uh, but yeah, the, the, the story that people tend to prefer is that they are humans that were brought into the, the hell dimension, as it were, after solving the, the lament configuration as the puzzle box. And then yes, whatever their, uh, their pleasure was ultimately becomes their torture and that shapes you know whatever disfigured form they take. So well, uh, if they really liked, I don't know, just uh, steaks, you know you blade know. stuff, then all of their uh, crewments are like blades.
1: Uh-huh. So if you like eating cheesesteaks, they they flog you to death with whiz.
0: <laughs> it's like the Simpsons bit, like uh, you know, you love donuts, eh? Like have all the donuts in the world. It's kind of like you know the monkey's pot type story.
1: Uh huh. So it's not all. Um, it's, but there's this, this. This isn't a comedy, right? This this. This is sort of grim and dark, and, and cruel. cool.
0: It's got some elements of perverse comedy because it does take itself seriously, and there's that gravitas that you would have from Doug Bradley. Uh, so yeah, like some of it, it is kind of tongue in cheek when you're seeing like the cenobite who's obviously like a glutton and he's like a big guy, and it, yeah, like there's there's some comedy to it, but it's uh you know, it's supposed to be a pretty straightforward horror. And.
1: The new one does achieve the elements, some of the elements that the original the original did.
0: Yeah, and like I said at the top, like I feel like it's, it's very different to be telling a Hellraiser story in 2022 than it probably was in the late 80s. Uh, you know, it hits the beats that it needs to. It's got the gore, it's got the creative kills, uh, you know, Pinhead being played by Jamie Clayton, like she nails it and actually brings the gravitas that Doug Bradley had. Uh, thematically, you've got that interplay between pleasure and pain, which is very important. And then there's a little bit of sprinkling of the lore that fans will appreciate of, you know, kind of what happens when you advance the puzzle box. And, uh, there's, there's a whole like kind of God element to it that it gets to that I don't want to spoil. All
1: right. Well, if you want to bring back to the beginning of this episode for me, I guess if I were to fall into that dimension, I I would be forced to watch, um, Amsterdam. David O'Russell's Amsterdam. Oh, oh, I didn't get a lot of pleasure out of that movie. So maybe maybe not. I don't know.
0: Damned for all eternity.
1: <laughs> Alright, Pablo Gaiaga, thank you so much. Please uh, don't uh, solve the Lament configuration this weekend.
0: <laughs> Thanks for having me Neil. <laughs>
1: Alright, thanks Pablo. This great age of horror continues with the Hellraiser reboot, now airing on Hulu. Also, thanks as always to Stephen Garrett for talking to me about Amsterdam, RIP, and about Kate Blanchett's performance in TAR. I'm Neil Pollack. I am the greatest living American writer, and I am the editor in chief of Book the World, www.bookatthonedworld.com. We bring you coverage of the worlds of books and film and streaming TV so you can make good. Reading and viewing decisions. That's really all you have in this world of the things you decide to read and watch. I have excellent taste, and now so do you. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you soon. You can buy the books discussed on the Book and Film Globe podcast at the Bookhouse, Book and Film Globe's independent bookstore. Go to the Bookhouse Milburn, M-I-L-L-B-U-R-N dot com to shop online and support small independent booksellers or visit our actual physical site in milburn new jersey where you can buy books from all the authors featured on the dark word and the book and film globe podcasts the bookhouse milburn.com
2: audio Hopper.